Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Babylon 5 Season 4 episode, No Surrender, No Retreat. So this is the episode that shares the subtitle but the rest of the season. I've brought this up many a times uh, the past three seasons now, uh, that each season had a subtitle, and the um, that, that subtitle would be the title of an episode within that season, and that episode was a very massive turning point within the story. Uh, and if you've watched this episode, you can very well tell this is a massive turning point for everything going forward. Uh, so it starts off strong, you know, enough is enough. Um, you know, that, that is, that's one of the most memorable scenes to me outside of, you know, certain like incredibly emotional scenes that enough is enough. Uh, and then seeing that the ships come in and then the prepping of the war room that has reminded me, or it was sort of stayed with me and reminded me several times about that scene, for quite some time there, there's been many times writing my own work where I want a big punchy opening and my my mind immediately goes to enough is enough I want something that just whacks you over the head like this is time to get serious um starts off really really good uh now let's talk about all the stuff outside of the civil war um, because, uh, the Civil War is going to be a big talking point. So let, let's talk about everything else going on. So the Garibaldi and the Londo and Jakar stuff. Garibaldi is the quickest and easiest one to get out of the way. Um, you know, he, it's very un-Garibaldi to, uh, not want to join up. You know, he's been vehemently against the xenophobia uh, sprouting around Earth for a very long time since season one, and uh, is very much against Clark. Uh, has a personal reason to uh, despise Clark, considering one of his you know agents shot him in the back. But he uh, doesn't want to join up. He disagrees with the way Sheridan is going about this. This is very ungarabaldi, and yet it makes sense from where he's at currently. You know, we know from a, you know, viewer perspective, we know that he's being manipulated or changed or something by some outside force. The Psychor is related and Bester is related as we pretty much discussed last episode. So the thing here is he's got a massive distrust between him and Sheridan right now. Um, so, even if Garibaldi was, had, like, like, was full on himself, and we did not know that he was being changed and manipulated by an outside force, we could still understand him not joining up, because there is a personal reason why he would not join up, and that is his own paranoia and, and mistrust and disagreement with Sheridan. And yet it's also unlike Garibaldi to look past that to uh, worry about the, the larger issues. Uh, and then we see him leave the station. Uh, and it's a nice touchy moment of, uh, you know, when are you going to be back? Never. Uh, and it takes one last look at Babylon 5 and then 
we hear Ivanova announcing the uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the the agreement assigned by the Narn and the Centauri, leg- legitimizing Sheridan's rebellion and uh, sort of showing a new sign of cooperation between the races. So, at the same time, you have great greatness and cooperation on the horizon and great victories ahead one of the core people of this show one of the core members of the crew their friend leaves it's quite it's quite heartbreaking you know in its own way um i think that scene would have landed a little bit better if we did not know that uh garibaldi was being changed by an outside force i you know, I go back and forth on on this entire thing, uh, and, and I'll talk more about it when we get to a particular episode this season, when all is on the tables and I don't spoil anything, but there's a lot of points this season where it hinders itself by having the viewer know uh, that something's going on, but also I feel like if we didn't know what was going on, or early some of it, then... Uh, there's the potential for the the storyline to fall flat because Garibaldi is acting kind of out of character but kind of not at the same time uh, more of a exaggerated portion of himself Um, so yeah Uh, it's a difficult situation but um, I enjoy that scene for what it is because it you know I say a lot, no matter how many times you win, you can still lose. Uh, and that that kind of feels like that scene is echoing that. Now the Londo and Jakar scenes. Oh boy, this is... This is heartbreaking stuff. This is Peter Jurassic and Andres Katsalos just acting their hearts out. Uh, in the shared history of these characters really packs a punch. Londo decides he wants to do something good. He wants to attempt to make amends. So he's going to back Sheridan because Sheridan has helped him in the past. He's going to, uh, you know, uh, prevent the Centauri government from being neutral in this uh, Earth Civil War and back Sheridan. Uh, And what he wants is he wants a demonstration um, that that positivity can come out of this by asking the Norns to do the same thing. If two enemies, who not too long ago were at each other's throats, can come together in a common cause and stand together in the belief that something is right and fair and just, maybe, just maybe, there's hope in this galaxy for something better. And Chikar, understandably, is resistant to it. Throughout that entire scene, he's stonewalling Londo. Londo is pouring his heart out, trying desperately to reach out to Jakar, and Jakar is, you know, you know, just spatting him away, just not caring. And it's so easy to see both their positions, because you have two people who have been through horrible stuff. One sacrificed his soul 
to the devil, effectively, and paid the price. The other one sacrificed his soul to save his people. Both want the same thing. The betterment of their people, better lives, uh, in truth and justice and all that. You know, the betterment of their societies. But they've gone about it in wildly different ways. And both have suffered one could argue whether they suffered equally or not. I don't think that really matters. I think they both have suffered a great deal, and I think that suffering is immeasurable. Um, certainly one has suffered more physical scars, um, but another has dealt with uh, far more emotional scars as well. So I would say that even if you don't consider the severity of their suffering equal, there is no denial that they have both suffered things that no one else should suffer. And Jakar, the reason he stole Wally Londo is a complicated thing. Londo is pouring his art out, and for lack of a better word, he is humanizing himself. Granted, he's not human, and neither is Jakar, but there's no word that I can think of that purposely, uh, uh, you know, uh, just perfectly encapsulates what's going on. Londo is trying to do the right thing here. Uh, and he has always, you know, done things that he believes is right, but sometimes he is wrong, or sometimes he goes about the wrong way, but now, legitimately, he is in the right. And Jakar can see that from a certain point of view, but he doesn't want to humanize Londo because Londo is the face of all the horrible things that happened to him. The enslavement of his people, the loss of his eye, his whipping, you know, the bombardment of his home world. Uh, you know, he is the physical embodiment he has to deal with day in and day out of that tragedy. And Londo puts it perfectly, you know, they, they are two people who are so intertwined with their hatred of each other that they fall into patterns every time they're around each other. One will say something, the other one will respond, and then very quickly it turns into a, a you know an emotionally heated argument. Uh, and Londo is trying to look past that, and Jakar just can't. You know, uh, it is it, it is a scene in which both have understandable reasons to be there and both have understandable reasons to deny the other. But it's a petty thing to let your own personal vendettas, your own personal feelings, get in the way of doing the right thing. And I think Jakar sees that. Whether he wants to admit it or not, he sees that. And there's this beautiful moment where Londo pours out the drinks, and he and he, he wants to take a drink, and then he offers that drink to Carr, you know, as a symbol of their newly formed agreement and cooperation to stand behind Sheridan. And and and, and Londo says, for the first time in a hundred years, we have something more in common than hatred. Mm, good shit. I, I tear up every time that comes up, and 
in it helps the you know uh, Christopher Rocky's music is really tugging at the heartstrings during that scene. Uh, and Jakar pours the drink back. Like I said, Jakar, in this moment, he's completely understandable why he is doing that. But I think he acknowledges that it was a petty move. Because in the end, it is pettiness. And he is letting his own biases, his own hatred for Londo, for the Centauri, to get in the way of standing behind someone who always had his back, that being Sheridan. Sheridan has always had both of their backs, and they owe him a great deal. Uh, and so, at the end, when there's a nice callback and inversion of the scene from Season 2, Coming of Shadows, where uh, Londo and Jakar sit down and have a drink, uh, unknowing that uh, that Londo has accidentally instigated a war between their two people, uh, and it's a horrifying scene, you know, in that context. But now, two seasons later, in this one scene, it is, that exact same scene almost plays out, but in a different way, in which it's sweet. You know, I will sign the agreement. But on a different page. That moment right there shows the growth both Londo and Jakarta have gone through the past four seasons. Imagine them all the way back in the gathering or midnight on the fire line. Would these two people sign the same agreement like this? No. This is beautiful. They are they are incredibly determined people who have understandable motivations and have seen tragic losses and suffered much. And many times they can be petty and selfish. But in this one moment, they look past that veneer of hatred to do something right. For the first time in a hundred years... We have something more in common than hatred. This one scene and his companion, the scene at the bar with the agreement that the it's beautiful shit. It, I can't I can't properly convey in words how much that scene means to me. Uh, two of my favorite characters, you know, and fulfilling parts of their arcs. It's beautifully written, beautifully acted. This is what B5 is really, really good at. Uh, this is really where B5 is firing on all cylinders. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Now let's get into the Earth's Civil War. So, uh, this, this situation is... A mess. Civil wars are always a mess. Uh, but Sheridan is in a situation where he has technically the uh, the technological superiority here. The White Stars are the most advanced fleet of ships. Uh, they, they wildly outclass you know, the Earth Alliance uh, Omega Destroyers and any other ships they have. 
However, you know, their fleets are not exactly, especially considering they asked the League of Non-Aligned Worlds and any other races to back them via uh, breaking the defensive packs with Earth uh, and uh, throwing political support, but only showing humanitarian aid, not not at all helping in the fights, not showing any kind of offensive capabilities towards her. You know, so Sheridan's fleet is significantly reduced without the other leaguers or the other races in general. So uh, Earth has the number advantage, but uh, Sheridan has the tech advantage. And it's important that the League and the other races do not get involved because since the very beginning, uh, you know, there's been a growing anti-alien sentiment on Earth and Clark fed into that xenophobia to uh, eventually, you know, take over and bring his dictatorship into full bloom. To use an alien fleet to attempt to take back Earth, you confirm everything that Clark has said, and you basically light that already smoking cinder with gasoline poured on it, you light it back up again, and the xenophobia is going to get far far worse than it already is. So the best option is to make the fleet entirely staffed by humans. Uh, and that means that they're going to be reduced forces, but they still have the tech advantage. And Sheridan acknowledges that a lot of this stuff is going to be difficult for uh, for people. You know, he has that, that scene of, uh, you know, a job of a soldier is to destroy the enemy and come back alive. Uh you know, do what you have to do. Um, because this is a situation, much like I mentioned last season, uh, during Severed Dreams, this is a situation in which friends are going to be fighting friends. Family members are going to be fighting family members. Uh, you know, this is something that wedges between all lines, all familiar lines. And could end very badly and lethally and kill lots and lots of people. And it's not going to be easy for anyone. And I think Ivanova shows that particularly. This has been the fight that she has been worried about since forever. There's always more of them than there are of us. Uh, you know, and, and she keeps... That, 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 that thing... That, that that central point of her character, her pessimism and how that and how she's lost everything she's ever cared about, keeps feeding and feeding this sense of doom in her. And it's been that way since you know season one, and it just kept building. And now here, we see she is deadly serious. There's that scene between Corin, you know, uh, you know, who do we trust? And you know, she's like, trust Ivanova, trust yourself. Everyone else, shoot them. Uh, and it is a perversion, in a way, of Battle of Five's rule from back in Season 1. You know, tr I will trust Ivanova. I will do what Ivanova says. Ivanova is God. You know, that was done as a joke. And she's a very jokey person when it comes to that. Uh, type of thing, but now she is deadly serious, and she's turned that joke into 
literal reality. Or, and it, like, like I said, Sheridan acknowledges that the emotional toll and physical toll this the Civil War is going to take on everybody. And you, we, can, we, the viewer, can see that most definitely in the way Ivanova has changed ever since Sheridan said enough is enough. Um, so when, uh, when they, when they attack, uh, and, and try and liberate Proxima, uh, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff, uh, done here to show that not everyone on a single ship is going to agree with one side or the other. Uh, there's regular mutinies, uh, mutinies, uh, against their captains or against the people who just tried to take over, uh, and, you know, this is a situation where there's people over, uh, over the entire political spectrum that either agrees or doesn't agree or is in between or undecided or, you know, whatever, and it's going to be a mess. And I think Sheridan's moral position and moral idealism is being tested here more than any other point. Um, you know, he is... He's tried to stick to the moral high ground ever since we met him. Uh, and he's a very deeply idealistic and deeply moral person. He believes in the true ideal of a soldier to protect and serve the people. Here's the thing, though. Civil wars are a mess. A real convoluted mess of misery and pain. And I think that is really seen when... You know, one of the Omega-class destroyers is, you know, getting ready to blow up. And he and he, he literally stands up from his captain's chair and says, like, Get to the life pods! Get to the life pods! Um, this is the moment where he is being tested in the idea that his belief that Clark's regime is illegal and immoral and wrong and must be challenged comes against people who believe it who believe that it is right and fair and just. And so you have people willing to die for their cause, much like he is willing to die for his. And that that's the situation that he finds himself in. His pure morality, while have, it has been tested before, especially during the Shadow War, it's being tested even further because you have people who are outside the influences of these great all-powerful races uh, and should be able to see the immorality, the illegality, but can't or don't. And it's it's really going to drive home with him at some point that this situation is just not going to be easily resolved. Uh, I like it how they they attempt to um, negotiate with everybody because they have the tech superiority. They are allowed, basically, the, the, the initiative to say, hey, you can flee if you want to. I'm not going to stop you. You can surrender. You can join up. I will not use lethal force unless I'm required. Um, and when they, when they get you know, a handful to, uh, to to surrender or flee, and then one of them blows up, you know, uh, th there's the real definition of victory that comes in. That this was not a victory. It was merely the achievement of an objective. 
uh, in civil wars like this, there is no victory. There is just too much life lost. Um, people who truly believe in their cause, who are dying, who at one time were friends, who were one time family, etc. Neighbors are fighting neighbors. It, it, this is a situation that is going to scar the psyche of the Earth Alliance and going to scar the territory physically. But like I said, also mentally, it's people. And it's going to be a hard thing to get through. Um, now, um, one, one thing I do really, 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 really like is that scene between Sheridan and the other captains. Uh, Sheridan is attempting to implore them to join up. He's like, hey, you can return home, I won't stop you. Or you can stand back here and protect Proxima from further invasion by Clark's forces, or you can join up with me and take the fight to Clark. Uh, and everybody there's a bit re resistant to it. The reason being is that you have a, you, you, you have a situation in which Sheridan is essentially doing a military coup d'etat. And when the military decides to, uh, dictate policy usually that does not go well ever you know uh it, but that's that's the problem is this this situation is not an easy one like clark has made this a dictatorship it's not a democracy anymore uh and it is wrong and immoral and it is with it Sheridan is morally correct to go and take the fight to him however not everybody's going to see it that way uh, and, uh, you know uh, C Commander Levitt pu puts it very perfectly when she's like I do not believe it is the right of the military to dictate policy I you know surrendered because I disagree with Clark's you know, orders, you know, I don't agree with his policies, but I don't believe it is my job to go and do this. And Sheridan goes, we swore to protect and serve the people from, uh, from enemies, both foreign and domestic. This is well within our purview to do it. And Mackie says, you're splitting the hair mighty thin there because either way you look at it, you like, Yes, you can look at it and go, oh, Sheridan is morally correct and everybody should support him and it's the right and the true and the greatest obligation you have and blah, 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 blah. And anybody who's against him is a traitor or whatever uh, or is morally bankrupt. Or you can look at it the pragmatic way and see this as nothing more than a power grab by Sheridan. And you can look at it and see him attempting to institute himself as a dictator. He doesn't say that. Uh, and that's certainly not his motivations, as us, the viewer, know, because we have spent several seasons with him. We know what his heart is like. We know he would never do that. But to the outside viewer, it is so easy to see it that way. And that's why Clark is able to spin the narrative against Sheridan so easily. And it's only going to get worse from here. Now... I want to talk one small thing in the in the spoiler section before I call it a day. So, in a perfect world, Claudia Christensen wouldn't leave after this season, and we would still have Ivanova in season five. However, that is not the case. 
she doesn't sign her contract and she uh, you know leaves and Ivanova is replaced by a character called Elizabeth Lockley in season five. As revealed later in season five, Lockley uh, did not agree with Clark, but she didn't agree with Sheridan particularly either, and so was stuck in the middle and had to fight effectively on Clark's side, but not agreeing with it, and went out of her way to avoid hitting the civilian targets like Mackie did. So here's the thing. If we knew, hypothetically, let's imagine we knew Claudia Christensen and Ivanova, you know, you know, uh, was not going to be in season five, and we knew that Lockley was coming in, I would make Commander Levitt Lockley. The reason being is because Lockley and Levitt's, uh, you know, response to Sheridan are, is exactly the same. You know, I don't agree with Clark's policies, but I do not believe it is the right of the military to dictate policy. And I think that would be interesting to see that character here and imply the relationship between her and Sheridan that we know from season five that they used to be married at one point um very briefly and they, they had a brief love affair I, I think that would be interesting to play with granted that this is all with hindsight and a situation that uh can never be done or couldn't have been done at all uh, no one knew that you know Claudine Christian wasn't going to sign her contract but I just think that would be interesting but anyway Truly a powerful episode with some wonderful moments and truly a game changer. I shall see you next time. Till then, bye.